our text week before last, last week for Resurrection Day and today, is, is the text of those last two pieces in Handel's Messiah. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, number 53, and then Amen. And that Amen just, boy, it just sends cold chills down my back every time I hear it. And I'm cranking it loud. I mean, it's rocking, you know. I can rock with ACDC or I can rock with Handel, all right? And so it's just amazing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who has redeemed us to God by His blood. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and riches and wisdom and strength. That's the song that Handel so beautifully, so beautifully wrote coming from this text. Let's look at it, all right? Take your Bibles and follow along with me. The key word in Revelation 4 and 5, especially in Revelation 5, is worthy. That's, that's, and I put the definition in our sermon notes. Because worthy is not something that we talk about a lot. It's not a word that I hear used a lot in our conversations. Uh, having worth or value, something that's honorable or meritorious, having importance. What is important? What is, what is, what is valuable, okay? What is, what is worthy to you? Well, that is what's talked about. That's what's addressed in chapter 5. And the key word in this chapter is worthy. All right. Who is worthy? Now, already in Revelation four, we have seen worthy are you, O Lord, our God, for you have received you received glory, honor and power. You created all things and by your will, they exist and were created. God is worthy of our praise because he is the creator. Chapter four worships God, the creator. Chapter five worships God, the redeemer, the lamb who was slain. So let's follow along. And what I want you to do, use the, use the ESV Bible that's in the pew in front of you if you want to, or use an ESV, because I'm going to ask you to read with me a portion of this. Last week, we read it together for Resurrection Day. I want you to read a portion of it with me when we get to the hymns, okay? The hymns, there are five songs in Revelation 4 and 5. The third one is what we see in verse 9 and 10. The fourth one is what we see in verse 12, and the fifth one is there in verse 13. I want you to read those with me when we get there, all right? Revelation 5, 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look on into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
And they sang a new song saying, read it with me. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, read it, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. God, we do need you to open the eyes of our hearts to see through this open door that you gave to John and that you gave to us. So, Lord, um, just as Paul prayed in the book of Ephesians, Lord, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see. And I pray that, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Who in the world... Who above the world, in the world, or below the world is worthy to approach the throne of God and to take from his hand this scroll that is so prominent in this passage of Scripture? Well, the answer to that question is, as we saw there, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has conquered. So he can take the scroll and open the seals. I love what, what uh, Schreiner said. Jesus is the one who has conquered and overcome, not because he mauled his opponents, but because he gave his life for sinners. He triumphs through suffering and death instead of through the destruction of his opponents with overwhelming force. Now, make no mistake, as we will start to see in chapter 6, these opponents do have to reckon for their rebellion. And they, in a sense, do get mauled. They do get destroyed. But that's not what we see right now. What we see is the risen Christ standing triumphant. He is the lamb who was slain. He is the the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. And as such, he is worthy to take the scroll and, and I believe, govern it. Work it out. Manage it, if you will. Govern all that is included in this scroll that John sees. So let's, let's just see that. And in your sermon notes, you're going to see three, basically three headings. You're going to see the scroll, you're going to see the lamb, and you're going to see the response that comes from that, okay? So John says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So notice who's holding this scroll. It's the one we saw over in chapter 4, okay? It is, it is the Lord God Almighty, the one who is eternal, who was and is and is to come. He is the one seated on heaven's throne. That's, that's who holds. And notice how he's holding this, this scroll, this, this writing. He's holding it in his right hand. And throughout the Word of God, the right hand is this picture, this symbolic picture of power and authority and might, okay? The psalmist, David, David talked about it a lot. 
As your name, O God, so is your praise. Reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand, the psalmist said, is filled with righteousness. Psalm 98, 1. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Okay? So this right hand is this picture of power and authority. And he holds in his right hand this scroll. Now notice how it's described. This scroll is full. How do we know that? Well, John says that he sees in some way that it's written on the front and on the back. So I imagine that it's rolled up and he sees on the outside of that last section writing on it. So implied in that is that it's written on the front and on the back. This scroll is completely full, meaning it is complete. That's what the seven seals. Remember, seven is a number for completion, for wholeness. So it's complete with seven seals. There's nothing missing. And there's nothing that can be added to it. It's complete in every way. And so it speaks, this idea that it's sealed up, speaks of God having the authority. Having, having, if you will, the ownership of that. A seal was something that was placed on a correspondence or a letter from the king or someone in power. You know, a wax seal emblazoned, if you will, embossed with, with that particular owner's seal. So this, this whole scroll belongs to God the Father. It belongs to God Almighty. It's sealed by Him. And it seems that there is in this a progression. And I, I don't understand how it works, but as, as the one who is worthy begins to unseal the scroll, as we'll see in chapter 6 and following, after each seal, there's a portion of it revealed. So it's not like you rip off all seven seals and, and start reading, all right? We don't even know the table of contents unless God had some, in some way made it available to us. So, so there's this idea of this progressive unfolding of what it is that's to follow. Deuteronomy 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. God is in the process here in Revelation 4 and 5 and following of revealing some secret things to us. And he's given us the invitation to look up into heaven through this open door that John sees in chapter 4. All right. So what does this scroll represent? I put a little bit there in your sermon notes. And there's a lot of debate about what this scroll actually represents. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm too simple minded. I don't I don't think it's that complicated. I mean, you know. Guys a whole lot smarter than me and women have written really thick books about what this scroll means. Just wait a minute. Just kind of look at the context. The scroll, I believe, symbolizes what's about to take place in the rest of Revelation. It, it, it's, what's, it's God's redemptive plan. It's God's redemptive purposes. It symbolizes his purpose for all of creation and for every creature in it. It is, if you will... Kind of thinking back into Ezekiel and Daniel talks some about this too. It's a scroll of judgment that we're about to see unfold. It's a scroll of salvation that we're going to see completed. It's a scroll of restoration, a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride. So it's this picture of this complete, Daniel called it, in Daniel 12.4, Daniel was told to seal up this book until the end of time. So it's the book about the end of time. But understand, right, that this end time began with Jesus' first advent, when he came the first time. So we're in the final days. And it's leading up to the time when that's all consummated, when it's all brought to a conclusion. 
It's like Ezekiel's scroll. Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 2, writing on the front and on the back. Okay, that's the other reference that we have to this full scroll. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. For many, it's a scroll of lamentation and mourning and woe. And for many, it's, it's, it's a scroll of celebration and joy and redemption and recreation. Joel Beek said this, Beeky said this, There is completeness here. The book is full. There is no space for additional writing. There are no omissions waiting to be filled in or corrections needed. He says the scroll is God's comprehensive, detailed, unchangeable plan for his creation. From the falling of a hair from your head, dear believer, to the latest world-shaking events reported in today's news, everything is on that scroll. The destinies of every atom in the earth as well as the mighty galaxies of the cosmos, all are there. I think that's what it is. It is God's plan. It is God's purposes. And here's the crux. Here's the problem. If if heaven has a problem, this is it in Revelation 5. That if this scroll is not opened, those things don't happen. That if this scroll stays, stays sealed, God's purposes as we'll see in the rest of this book, are not unfolded. They are not realized. Implied in this, symbolized in this, is that there needs to be someone, some way, to unroll this scroll so that what God has purposed can actually take place, can actually be worked out. This scroll must be opened for that destiny to be fulfilled. This scroll must be open for those purposes to be accomplished and for sinners like you and me to be redeemed. How do we know that it's so weighty? How do we know that there's that much hanging in the balance? What's the big deal? Well, look at the text. There's a question that comes rolling across creation, all of cosmos. It says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now, that's something we're going to see over and over in Revelation. You're going to see something and then hear something. Okay, it's, it's kind of this play on words. It's kind of this mysterious way that the Holy Spirit's revealing this to us. You see something and hear something. Or you hear something and turn around and see something completely different. You see a little of both of those things in Revelation. Well, here, the mighty angel is seen but heard. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. This angel is, he's mighty. Now, again, we've talked about this before, guys. Uh, these angels are not little cute cherubs with angels and halos and playing harps. All right? They'll scare the bejeebies out of anybody. But this one's mighty. I mean, I would think they all are. But this one stands out. He stands out to John and he stands out and he calls out. And what he says is huge, huge in its implication. And I believe huge in its volume. There's who is worthy. And and the language here is so dramatic. Who is worthy? And there's silence. There's silence in heaven. And I don't know how long, I just, I just think that the weightiness of that question all of a sudden settles over this control center for all the universe. 
And that weight of that question sinks in. Who is worthy to take control of God's sovereign plans? Who is worthy to govern and administrate and reign? Who is worthy to even approach the throne of holy God? And not just approach, but stand in the middle with him. Who is worthy to do that? Who is worthy of this eternally significant task? And the answer is, at first, silence. And then it comes. There is no one in heaven. No one up there. None of these holy angels who have never sinned are worthy of this. None of these saints who have gone before are worthy of this. No one on the earth right then or now is worthy. And no one under the earth is worthy. There's no one worthy to not just open the scroll or to look into it. I was reading a book this week. I don't even know why I bought it a while back, but it looked interesting. 131 Christians everyone should know. Holman Press published a book. 131 Christians everyone should know. It's, it's interesting the way it's broken down. There's theologians. There's a section for theologians. And included in that are people like Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards. There's a section in there for evangelists and apologists like George Whitfield, And, of course, Billy Graham is in the book. There's preachers and pastors like John Newton and, and Charles Spurgeon. All right? There's... There's musicians and artists and writers in one chapter, like Rembrandt, Bach, Handel is in there. C.S. Lewis is included in that. There's a chapter for poets. There's a chapter for denominational founders. There's a chapter for what he calls movers and shakers. There's a chapter for missionaries, like Hudson Taylor, Jim Elliott. Missionaries who left the comforts of home and went to a foreign land where they didn't know the people, didn't know the language, didn't know the culture. Many of them lost their families there to sickness and health. Many of them lost their own lives there. There's a chapter in there on what it calls inner travelers. These are, these are those spiritual types, okay, like Brother Lawrence or Oswald Chambers, whom many of you read every morning. There's activists like William Wilberforce and Harriet Tubman. There's kings and rulers, scholars and scientists, Galileo, Copernicus. There's martyrs for the faith like Stephen and Ignatius and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Not a single one of them is worthy. No one. Not Abraham, not Moses, not Paul. No one. Not John as he stands there and sees this. No one. That's the answer. There's no one worthy. And I hate to break it to you guys, but you and I don't qualify either. Because like every other human being before us, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I'll say this again later. I don't think any of us are so brash or prideful, I would hope not, that we would think... Oh, I could walk across the throne room of heaven and take that scroll. None of us, I don't think, are that crazy. We wouldn't try to do that. But here's what, we, here's what I try to do. In my own little universe, I just leave this throne room out of it. I don't need him. 
telling me what to do. I'm not going to approach his throne. I just don't want him bothering mine. None of us are worthy. And, and, and here's the response. Here's why it's such a weightiness. Here's why it's such a big deal. See, John is not merely a spectator here. He's not a bystander. He's involved in it and he gets it. He understands. If there is no one worthy, the implications of this are heartbreaking. They're, they're, he's broken by the reality. He weeps at the prospect that creation and all creatures are lost forever and undone with no hope. That's what happens if this scroll doesn't get opened. And he weeps because he realizes there's no salvation for God's people. There's no restoration of God's creation. There's no hope for the human race unless there is someone who, who does that. So here's the question I was thinking about. What moves us to tears? He wept at the reality of lostness and its consequences. What breaks our heart? What breaks my heart? Is it the lostness and despair of my fellow men, my brothers and sisters around me, of, of fellow humans? humans? Is, is that what breaks my heart and causes tears? Or is it the loss of my political party or my portfolio or my comfort or my favorite team? What brings me to tears? John got it. He, he, he was not just a spectator. He was involved in it. There's this scroll. And then secondly, there's the answer. Praise God, there's an answer. Amen. The strong Savior. And one of the elders in verse 5 said to me, weep no more. Behold. There's that word again. We're going to get that a lot. Behold. Here, John, look at this. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures. So get the geography here, okay? Get the logistics. Understand this. Here at the center of the universe is the throne. And there's these four living creatures that we saw in chapter 4. And the elders then on another concentric circle kind of around them. And then there's angels and then there's everything else. But here between the living creatures and the throne. Implied in that is at the throne. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll. Thank you, Jesus. He went and took it. Took it from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. John, stop crying and start looking, okay? So what is he looking for? Well, he's been told... The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered. And we talked about this last week. I touched on this briefly last week, you know, on Resurrection Sunday. And I'm not going to go back through the whole thing, but he's told to, to, to stop crying because the lion has overcome. The root of David has conquered. And this lion of the tribe of Judah is a messianic title that comes from Genesis 49. When Jacob was blessing all of his sons in Genesis 49, he speaks to Judah. And this is what he said to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Verse 9 of Genesis 49. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? 
And then in verse 10, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Wow, that prophecy given to Judah is a prophecy about this lion of the tribe of Judah that we see now behind the door of heaven. And he's also the fulfillment of the messianic promise given to David. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jeremiah the prophet said the same thing. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's what's in that scroll, the justice and righteousness in the land. And this line of the tribe of Judah, this root of David, has conquered. Remember last week that word Nike? In the, in the Greek language, he has conquered, he has overcome, he has prevailed. And when John turns to see this roaring lion, he sees a lamb. A lamb standing. A lamb standing who had been slain. A lamb standing who had been slain who is standing there at the throne of God. Where only God can stand. So this this whole... I mean, just think about the whole panoramic view that we have in God's Word. This lamb who was slain is something that, as we saw in Ephesians, it was predestined, okay, before the foundation of the world. All right, later on in Revelation, he's going to be called, Jesus is going to be called the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So he was predestined for this, for this slaughter. This, this lamb is the point of the redemption story. Genesis 22, I read it last week. God will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. God himself, that's what he told Abraham when he was ready to offer Isaac on the mountain. The whole point of the redemption story, your lamb shall be without blemish during the Passover, God told the people in, in Egypt. The redemption story points to it. The prophets prophesied about it. What they said pointed to him. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our sin was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, the prophet said. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the promise that was given to Isaiah. And then he says, as a lamb was led to the slaughter. That's this lamb. Alright? So... It was, it was all the prophets pointed to it. And listen, all the priests, the whole Old Testament priestly sacrificial system pictured it. These priests working day and night, killing lamb after lamb, ox after ox, animal after animal. There's almost a hundred references to the lamb in the Pentateuch. Okay, just from Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those first five books, there's over a hundred references to the lamb and the role of the lamb in this sacrificial system. And all of that, all of that points to this one. Because the writer of Hebrews says it's impossible. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats or lambs to take away our sin. Right? It won't do it. And Peter said, we were not ransomed from our futile ways inherited from our forefathers with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, Peter says. So this lamb, he was, he was predestined, he was predicted, they pointed to it. And then Paul tells us in Romans that God put him forward as a propitiation for our sin. So he was presented there on the hill in Calvary, and, and nobody saw it. Nobody noticed it. Really understood the significance of it then. And here he is presented again. They're in the throne room of heaven. Like I said last week, that the verb tense there is a, is a perfect tense. There's a, there's a once-for-all nature to this idea that he was slaughtered. There's an ongoing reality. This lamb, our Savior, when we see him in glory, he will bear the scars. We will know that he was slaughtered. We will know that he was slain. And, and one writer said it's as, though heaven, it's as though heaven can't stop thinking about the bloody death of the Lamb. Our culture doesn't want to talk about the blood. But heaven can't stop talking about it. They can't stop singing about it. And, and three times, slain, 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 verse 6, verse 9, verse 12. Here is this Lamb who was, who was punished sacrificed, he was slaughtered, and he is standing again, a perfect tense. There's, there's a permanence. He's not in that grave anymore. Amen? He's left the tomb. He's not dead. He's alive. And here he is standing. And notice what it says next. He is standing like God. And what I mean by that is these characteristics that we see. There's these seven horns. Again, complete number. And this horn is a symbol of power. So he's complete in his power. He's, um, he's omnipotent, unlimited in his power. There's this picture of these eyes, this perfect sight, seven eyes. Again, he can see perfectly. There's this omniscience. Only God is omnipotent. Only God is omniscient. Only God is omnipresent. The seven spirits sent out into all the earth. We've already seen this is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power, of, the power of Christ, the presence of Christ. I mean, God was showing us himself in Christ. The Spirit is showing us Christ. And he's doing that in this amazing way. So this is the Lamb. This Lamb is God. That's, that's the one who's worthy. Don't miss it. He was slaughtered. He was risen. And therefore, he, is, he has the sovereign authority to walk across that throne room and take that scroll in his hands and carry out the plans and purposes of God. He alone is worthy. And when he does that, all of heaven responds. Now, let me just talk for a second about this, this paradox, if you will. And I put it this way in my notes. He is the lamb-like lion, and he is the lion-like lamb. You go, wait a minute. One of those creatures weighs six, seven hundred pounds. His roar can be heard five miles away. He is fearless. He knows no enemies, and he shows no mercy. And the other one, on a good day, might weigh 25 pounds wet. Doesn't make a real loud sound. And it's completely meek and helpless in so many ways. And here's what we'll see unfolding in the rest of Revelation. Jesus is never again, this is the last time he's referred to as a lion. You won't hear it again in the book of Revelation. Twenty-nine times he'll be referred to as the lamb. 
And in the book of Revelation, one writer said, Revelation wasn't written to Jesus' enemies. It was written to his children, to those who love him. And to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he is pictured as a lamb. In Revelation 7 and verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and before me there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Same thing over in the end in Revelation 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's a shared throne flowing down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations and no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. This lamb-like lion, meek, reigning, providing, showering down grace and goodness. But he is also lion-like. In Revelation 6, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, we'll see this, we'll, we'll see this hopefully next week. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave and every free man, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And listen to this. And from the wrath of the Lamb. Huh? The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? In Revelation 17, the enemies, talking about the enemies of God, will make war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with Him, listen to this, will be His called, chosen, faithful followers. Interesting, interesting note here. In the second portion of Handel's Messiah, you find the Hallelujah Chorus. I'm thinking, if I would written that thing, I would have put that thing at the end, you know. The Hallelujah Chorus. The Hallelujah Chorus is inserted in there as heaven and earth's response to what you will read in Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is, are the lyrics for three different pieces in that second movement, in that second portion of Handel's Messiah. Why do the nations rage? And the kings and, and their kingdoms plot against the Lord and against His anointed. Let us break his bonds. Let us get out from under his yoke. And the Lord laughs in derision at them. And judges them. And the response of the cosmos and creation to the reality of God's judgment. The, the response of the redeemed to the wrath of the Lamb is hallelujah. Our God reigns and He wins. Amen? That's the response. So as the redeemed, we will one day stand in heaven and praise God that our Savior is lion-like. Takes no prisoners and utterly destroys His enemies. That sounds harsh. And that is the dark side of the gospel. You receive Jesus as your meek lamb Savior. Or deal with him one day as your lion-like enemy. 
choice is yours. The choice is yours. And in response to this, they break out in song. It's just spontaneous. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. There's nothing opened. There's no seals broken. No one knows any more about what's on the inside of that scroll now than they did at the beginning of the chapter. All, all the lamb has to do is walk over there and take that scroll in his hand. And when he had taken the scroll in verse 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before him, before the lamb. And they're worshiping him. They're singing. They're holding harps. They're lifting up golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. I believe those particular prayers right there are the prayers of the saints who have been praying for what you see unfolding in this chapter. Please, God, be victorious. And they are being answered. And like the incense in the tabernacle coming up before God is a pleasing aroma, these prayers are being offered up. And so they fall down before him with golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you've ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So here's the 24 elders falling down. Singing, playing music, bowls of incense, the prayers of the saints. And here's, and, and then this concentric circle of worship just cascades out, okay? First the elders, and then myriads upon myriads. Literally, the math, I couldn't figure it out. A lot of commentators say it's a hundred million angels. That's a lot. That's a lot. So there's the elders, then there's the angels, and then this concentric circle expands further out, and it's every created thing in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. It's universal worship earned by the one who is worthy to take the scroll. And he is worthy to take the scroll. Why? Well, because he was slain. And to what end was that? He purchased. He redeemed. A price was paid. Blood was shed and a purchase was made. He has, he has ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. By your blood, you've ransomed people and they're for God. If you are redeemed today, if you belong to Jesus, you are God's. You belong to Him. You're His possession. Let that sink in. That's your identity. That's who you are today. You belong to Him. You're His child, His possession. He's worthy because he has paid a price. He is worthy because of the restoration that he's going to bring about. I think that's what this passage talks about when he says, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's recreation. That's the new heavens and the new earth. That is what we were created to be in the first place, only this is going to be better. We are a kingdom. We belong to him. He is our king. We are priests. We have a role and responsibility to play before Him and before one another and before the world around us. We are His and we belong to Him and we fulfill His purpose. All the, and we are His stewards. We are His co... We reign with Him. It's, it boggles our minds. The enemy would tell us that we are worthless and that we are sinners the enemy would tell us that we have failed. 
a lot of that is true. But like Shane and Shane say in their song, he leaves out the refrain. We're redeemed. We're in the kingdom. We belong to him. And we have a purpose. We have an amazing purpose. And he is worthy because he's restoring that. And the angels, this is an amazing thing. These angels, they're, they're spectators in, in salvation. You understand that, right? Peter says angels are kind of leaning over the balcony of heaven looking into this thing called salvation. That's one of the reasons they're not worthy. Oh, they're holy. They've never sinned. But they're just spectators in this thing called salvation. And they are deeply interested and they are worshiping God. The Bible says in Luke 15 that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner. Imagine what it's like when the people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation stand before him. Holy moly, what a song. What a chorus. What a celebration. If, one, if the angels partied when one of us was saved, imagine when the whole multitude of the redeemed are standing there. My goodness. Can you hear that song thundering? Are you going to be singing it too? Let's think about how to apply something as massive as this. I've got four things for you to think about. Jesus is at the center of this universe. He is in reality. He is spiritually Jesus is at the center of the universe. I have a simple question for you this morning. Is he at the center of your universe? Is he the theme of your song? One old Puritan writer put it this way. Heaven must be in you before you can ever be in heaven. Jesus is lamb-like in his meekness. Lamb-like in his obedience. Isaiah said, like a lamb led to slaughter, he was silent before those who took his life. He is meek, he is gentle, he is lowly in heart. And if you come to him, he says, you will find rest for your souls. And so this meek lamb who is standing, resurrected and alive right now in heaven is, is gently calling for you to come to him and be saved, to turn from your sin to get out of the throne room of your own little universe and expand the whole reality of your life and invite Him in. He is standing at the door and knocking. I know that's not the, the full application of that, but He is today just through the preaching of this Word. Will, will you invite Him in? Invite in this meek, lamb-like Savior or face Him as a lion-like opponent there's no future in that there's no future in that Christian is he at the center of your universe and is he the theme of your song I just asked that for the person who might not be in Christ today but remember we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory and I say again what I said earlier none of us I don't believe for a second would dare take a step across that throne room and feel like we're worthy to approach the throne and take that scroll but we will so often say God if it's okay you just stay out of my little throne you stay out of my little world 
I'm doing okay without you. And we need to repent of that. Church, he is worthy. He is the lamb who died for you, and he is the lion who fights for you. He is the majestic lion. He is a meek lamb. And I, I, I just think on this. I've been thinking about this all week now for about three weeks, just meditating on this. The, just a, how, how does that come together? Meek as a lamb, fierce as a lion. And in some mysterious, miraculous way, that comes together in Christ. That comes together in Jesus. And so just think about how mercy and majesty meet. Think about how strength and humility never lose sight of that amazing grace. Don't get tired of singing that song. And never lose sight of the fact that it is victory in Jesus that we have. Sing about His blood. Be broken by it. But rejoice in the victory you have through it, church. Thirdly, I was thinking about this early this morning. This just came to me early this morning. The, rev, the, the emotions we see in Revelation 5 should be the emotions of the church today. There should be weeping over the lostness and the desperate condition of those around us without Jesus. And there should be joy in the victory that ours is in Christ. Weeping and singing. We don't weep enough over the right things. Uh, let me say, I don't weep enough over the right things. I won't say that about you. I know I don't weep enough over the things I should weep over. And I celebrate too often the things I shouldn't. And the emotions of Revelation 5 should be our emotions. And it should give us confidence and strength, church, knowing that He will redeem people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Ours is not the job of redeeming them. Ours is simply going to them and sharing. And God will do the work. The pressure is off. He's going to do it. And finally, just this reality of who we are in Christ. This is how Jesus sees us. We are a kingdom. We are priests. We are co-heirs, co-regents, co-rulers, if you will. We have a king and we are a kingdom. We, have pre- we are priests and we have a calling and we are stewards. We have an eternally significant job to do, church. Let's never lose sight of that. Let's pray. Worthy are you, O Lord Jesus, to receive honor and glory and wealth, wisdom and strength and power. Help us give you Help us give you those things, Lord. Not that you need them, but as we sing of that, as we speak of that, as we meditate on that, we magnify it. We make it bigger, more of a reality. Make that a reality in our lives. Help us turn our eyes upon Jesus, Lord. I pray in his name. Amen.